PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Anyone can do a study and find nothing. That's very simple to do. It's very hard to do a controlled study and actually find something. I think we've tried really hard as a scientific community to encourage people to publish negative findings. I have the feeling that a good portion of people do submit their work, but that the work just doesn't make through the review process. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, based on the PTJ article, Full Text Publication of Abstract Presented Work in Physical Therapy. Do therapists publish what they preach? Author Dr. Stuart Warden joins two editors-in-chief, Dr. Rebecca Crake of Physical Therapy and Dr. Guy Simoneau of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy to analyze the physical therapy publication paradigm. And now, our moderator, PTJ editorial board member, Professor Chris Marr. Welcome to the PTJ podcast entitled, Do Therapists Publish What They Preach? The idea for today's podcast arose from a paper in the February 2011 edition of PTJ. This study looked at abstracts presented at orthopedic or sports physical therapy sections at combined section meetings between the years 2000 and 2004. Interestingly, the study found that only one in four abstracts were published in peer-reviewed journals by five years. Importantly, 40% of the eventual journal publications contained a major change from the information presented at CSM. This is such an interesting, important and topical paper, I thought it would be perfect for a podcast. We have with us today an author from the trial, Dr. Stuart Warden. Dr. Warden is Associate Professor and Director of Research in the Physical Therapy Program at Indiana University, Indianapolis, and he's also on the editorial board of five international journals, including the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to it. Good to have you here. We also have Professor Rebecca Craig to discuss this issue. Dr. Craig is Professor and Chair in the Department of Physical Therapy, Arcadia University, Glenside, Pennsylvania. She is Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy. Welcome, Dr. Craig. Thank you very much for inviting me. Good to have you here. And lastly, we have Professor Guy Simino. Dr. Simino is Professor in Physical Therapy at Marquette University, where he teaches the Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy curriculum. Dr. Simino is the current Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. Welcome, Guy. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for being with us. So I wanted to start with a question to Stuart. What drew you to this research topic, and why do you think it was important to establish if CSM presentations were being published? It's interesting. A few years ago, we were reading physical therapy and there'd been a few publications on basically publication performance in the profession and looking at ways that we can monitor how we're performing as a profession in terms of peer-reviewed publications. And that got us to thinking, how can we document this? We thought it'd be important to look at, do we publish what we basically preach at conferences in a peer-reviewed manner and then look at it in comparison to other professions? Okay. Stuart, I found figure one in the paper fascinating. For our listeners, this looked at the effect of various characteristics of abstracts on timed presentation. Can you share with us the main results? Explain what you found there. So what we did was we chose a five-year period to look at abstracts. We chose 2000 to 2004, 
and we got all the abstracts from the orthopaedic and sports physical therapy sections at CSM. And the reason we chose those sections was that those abstracts were published so we could access them. And the reason we chose 2000 and 2004 was that we wanted to leave a five-year window after presentation to allow the data to be published. What Figure 1 shows is basically the rate of publication of those abstracts in peer-reviewed publication form over the five years after they were presented. We teased out as much data as we could get from each abstract in terms of what year it was presented, what the originating institution was in terms of whether it was a doctorate or non-doctorate granting institution or a clinical or other institution, the study design, study significance, funding source, and, and also the presentation type. And what we found was that it didn't matter what section the abstract was presented in, and the same with time. So whether you presented the abstract in 2000 or whether you presented it in 2004, the odds that it went on to publication were about the same. But what was interesting was that if the abstract originated from a doctorate or another institution, so a clinical-type institution, it was four to five times more likely to be published as a peer-reviewed publication than if it came from a non-doctorate granting university study design. If it was a randomized controlled trial or a quasi-experimental study, it was more likely to be published than a case study or a non-experimental study. And if you reported a funding source or you presented your abstract as a platform presentation, it was more likely to go on to a peer-reviewed publication Okay. Um, the changes that your colleagues found between the abstract presented at CSM and what finally made the final journal paper were often quite important. So, for example, about one in three journal papers, the data was different to that presented at CSM. Can you give us an example just to illustrate that issue for the listeners? We found that interesting as well. And this was a little bit expected in that you don't expect everything that's presented at a conference to be concrete and final data. You always expect some of that data to be pilot. And often the reason that the data changed was that the sample size changed. And like I said, that's what we'd expect. But what was interesting was that in 21 of the publications, so 10% of them, the sample size actually decreased from what was presented in abstract form. So this means that some subjects were actually removed from data sets after it was presented as an abstract. It was a bit intriguing why sample size decreased and you may think, well, maybe it decreased because it made their data stronger or it made their data significant. But that wasn't the case either because we looked at whether the direction of the primary finding changed between the abstract and the final peer-reviewed publication and really it didn't. So by changing the sample size, it really didn't change the conclusions of the papers, but it was still interesting to us. Okay, thank you. If I now open it up to our editors, Dr. Craig and Dr. Simler, what are your thoughts on this study? I think the general findings of the study that there is a limited number of abstracts that find their way to publication and that the content of what is published is a little different than what is in the abstract is actually pretty consistent with similar studies done for other meetings and related disciplines. So from that perspective, the numbers are different and the data is interesting, but the general findings are pretty consistent with other areas. And in fact, this is why most guidelines for publication indicate that you should not use abstracts as references when you're publishing papers. I think it's very well established that results presented at abstracts at scientific meetings are not the most reliable or valid source of data, and it's discouraged for using those as references. I think this is where we have to step back a little bit and look at the big picture of presenting at meetings and the fact that people want not to present already published work, and organizers of meetings want the new ideas, the newest way for treatment or method of research, and they do that with the fact that they accept that not all of that work will get into publication and that not all the work will be published just as is. So 
I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that when we go to a meeting, it is a wonderful experience to go there to look at the newer kind of work that's done, technology that's being used, the treatment methods that are being proposed, but always to keep in mind that there's a good chance that those things will change. And some of those changes are not necessarily always under the control of the investigators if they're in the earlier part of their work. You know, you may have run into issues where through the review process, it was pointed out that maybe some of your subjects did not quite meet your inclusion-exclusion criteria. There may be justifiable reason for that. I like to think that it's not always because of trying to manipulate data. Dr. Craig, what would you add? Well, I also found it a really interesting paper. There was a discussion that other professionals have a turnaround of about 45% compared to our about 25%. But I think that the other professionals we were talking about were orthopedic surgeons or orthopedic society meetings. And I consider them a bit further along in their professional development than physical therapists. So I wasn't discouraged that only 25% of the presentations at Combined Sections meeting were transferred into publication. I was pleasantly surprised. And I don't expect this to be that high either. And that wasn't the point of the study, to see are we equivalent to these groups, but just to see where we are as an initial benchmark. And the goal would be to do this again in five, ten years and see... Do we increase? Are we changing? Are we getting more infiltrated in sort of academic settings where there's a stronger research infrastructure? So I think you know, over the mm-hmm. next decade or two, we'll see that there is an increase as we move towards more evidence-based practice. And we have more senior investigators in physical therapy rather than junior investigators. But she is right. We're comparing apples and oranges. We are low compared to other groups. But I think that will change pretty quickly over the next few years. Okay. Dr. Simino raised the issue that the results that are presented at CSM are preliminary, but could we also say the same thing about the information presented in the two journals, PTJ and JOSC, because abstracts are more likely to be published if they had significant findings, so potentially within our journals we have a biased subset of physical therapy research, so should we believe what's published in the journals or should we believe what's presented at CSM? Well, I agree with what Guy said. There's a culture where you present your work in a public forum to get feedback so that you can go back and refine it. So often you think you have a great idea. You may have some pilot data, but you gather more information and feedback and come back and refine the work. So I don't have the expectation that that's final data. And the other point that you raised, Chris, I think is a very important one. I think there's a bias among scientists not to publish negative data. I think we've tried really hard as a scientific community to encourage people to publish negative findings, but that's that's a big row for us to hold. Okay, what would you add? Well, if I go back to your question, what should I believe what's published in the journal versus CSM, I think the material that is published in journals, having been fully vetted through a peer review process, should be well above the credibility of a short abstracts presented at a meeting. I mean, that's an easy one. Now, when it comes to publication, we all know that you always have somebody that will do a study better. And it's not a question of credibility oftentimes. It's the quality of the research. The perfect study has yet to be published. So regardless of the source, you should look at the quality of the work and always look at the limitations of the study when you interpret the data. Okay. Thank you. Um, Chris, do you mind if I jump in and... Sure, Stuart. 
In terms of the negative findings and that JOSP and physical therapy journals just published significant findings, I think that's not isolated to those journals and that's well known across all fields all the way up to the highest impact journals, you know, New England Journal of Medicine, which are doing a much better job of publishing negative findings, but they've got to be good negative findings in the sense that the study has been done correctly because anyone can do a study and find nothing. That's very simple to do. It's very hard to do a controlled study and actually find something because you have to power it and you have to perform it with adequate outcome measures. But people who do those negative studies that are good negative studies that have been designed well and performed well really need to be encouraged to publish their findings. You know, as far as the bias in publication, it is interesting that if we look at the manuscript by Dr. Warden that studies with positive findings are published in journals that have a highest impact factor. And the studies that did not have positive findings had the more likelihood of being published in journals with lesser impact factors. So obviously, one way to look at this is that the bias gets increasingly larger for publishing positive results, the better the journal is. Another way to look at it is a little bit going back to what Stuart was just saying, is that maybe studies that have better quality have positive findings, but I don't know which one it is. So maybe the cause and effect that we assume that negative findings don't get published as much and that there's a bias is not quite as clear-cut as we want it to be. Okay. I think we all agree that we want to get more of these abstracts presented at CSM through the peer review process and published in physical therapy journals. If I open it up to all of you, how do we go about doing that? We've got a benchmark that Stuart talked about, I think it's 25%. What's the approach we're going to use to move that up? Well, this is Becky speaking. What impressed me, back to figure one, which I agree is just a really interesting way to summarize the data. There are two things I think that we might do. In E, where it shows the types of trials that get published, it looks as though the randomized control trials and quasi-experimental trials are more often published than the non-experimental trials, for example. And then in H, where we look at platform versus poster, there's a really large difference. So again, the assumption that one would like to make is that people who select or are selected to present platforms have a more final product, whereas posters may be, back to what we were saying earlier, an opportunity to share preliminary findings and seek information. So I guess one suggestion would be for Guy and I to go up to the people who have platform presentations and are doing randomized control trial and quasi-experimental trials and ask them to submit publications. You know, to reach out to those presenters and invite them would be one way to do it. Gary, have you got any ideas about what we can do here? Well, yeah, so obviously the two options for the work not being published is either the work is not submitted or it doesn't meet the criteria for publication. And it's unclear to me which is the predominant issue. I have the feeling that a good portion of people do submit their work, but that the work just doesn't make through the review process. If we assume that the predominant issue is not meeting the requirements through the peer review process, then obviously people are submitting their work. You've raised a really good question, Guy. It sounds like another research project. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And it was sort of the question I was going to ask Stuart next. Do we understand what the barrier is here? Is it, as Beck said, that people are not preparing a manuscript or the manuscript that they do submit is suboptimal? Do we have any idea what it is that's preventing the abstracts from being converted into journal manuscripts? Based on our study, we don't. We didn't contact any investigators or any abstract presenters in terms of why they did not have their work published. Was it they either did not submit it or it just wasn't accepted. 
people have done that in some other areas. I know there's at least one paper in New England Journal of Medicine where they contacted presenters and asked them why their abstract didn't end up being published. So it has been done, but it involves surveying the presenters. And we couldn't do that in this study. This was purely a paper-based study in the sense that we got the abstracts and then looked at which ones went on to be published and what factors influenced that. But that would definitely be a great next study is to look at why some abstracts didn't go on to publication. Okay. I've got a question now for the two editors again. Do we have space in our journals for all these abstracts? We're talking about a large number of abstracts. To what extent could your two journals accommodate these abstracts if they met the standards of the two journals? I'll answer that first, if you don't mind, because we do actually publish the CSM abstracts for the orthopedic and sports physical therapy section, and we publish them in the January issue of each year, which is basically the month just prior to the meeting. And that's actually, I believe, the source of Dr. Warden's information as far as abstracts presented and so on. Basically, I like to do it. I like to do it because it gives the authors and our profession an official record of what was presented at each of the meetings. And also, I've been told several times that people having the abstracts ahead of time allow them to look prior to the meeting what will be presented and make kind of a roadmap of what they would like to see and the posters they would like to go and read and talk to the authors. And also, for those not attending the meeting, it gives them an idea of what was presented. I think what Guy said is really appropriate for JOSPT because it's primarily the orthopedic and sports abstracts, whereas for us, since we're the generalist, we would really be expected to publish all of the abstracts for CSM, and at one point we did that, but I would say that I don't see the reason for us to publish the abstracts in the journal. I'd be much more interested in publishing more full-length papers. I guess another question is, if these were eventually converted into full-length manuscripts, would either of the two journals, PTJ or JOSPT, have sufficient space to accommodate them? Well, I'm sure that either one of us would be more than happy to have too many manuscripts to publish and would solve the problem. If we increase the number of quality submissions, we'll make the space available and figure out how to do it. Yes, I think eventually, though, it is unrealistic to think that every single paper presenting at a meeting will have the quality to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. One of the factors that I would be curious to know for our meetings as well as other meetings when we think of publication rate of those abstracts is the input, the level of screening prior to make it to the meeting. If a meeting is very, very selective in the abstract that they select, maybe that's why we have a greater proportion of those papers going on to be published. If a meeting for the purpose of widespread audience and ability to share ideas is a lot more open as far as the kind of abstract they're presenting, then it's probably not realistic that a high proportion of those will make it to publication. And I think this may be an issue for us to consider based on the evidence-based practice approach and also the transition to the DPT program. I think what the DPT has been trying to do is to give a very broad culture of research across clinicians and all the programs and so on. And I think that promoting sharing of those maybe projects that are not ultimately going to make it to publication and yet may have some new ideas and some new innovation in a setting like CSM is not a bad thing. So, you know, maybe CSM, the purpose is to have a broader presentation, not be so selective with abstracts, recognizing that a lot of the work may be more student projects, maybe lesser refined work, but at least it gets shared and people can get ideas from it. 
Well, I wonder whether that relates to the number of non-experimental presentations, either oral presentations or posters that are presented in Dr. Warden's paper. I wondered whether that kind of manuscript represented what you suggested, Guy. So there may be more of a student project or a case report where somebody wants to share an idea. Yeah, 30% of the papers at CSM are non-experimental in nature. So I think case theory, case reports, commentaries, ideas, those all have value. They do all have value. But I'm not sure that any scientific journal has a third of their publication being commentaries, opinions, and case reports and case series and things like that. I think that's a pretty high percentage from that perspective. So where do you set the threshold for having a very strict threshold for only including the most rigorous studies to a much more inclusive CSM where everybody gets a chance to share their research? What do you think about that, Stuart? Where would you see the current balance lying? Have we got it right or do you need to change it slightly? You know, I get a sense that basically no matter what you submit to CSM, it will get accepted, which is fine so everyone can go and present, but that conference is getting bigger and bigger every single year and something's got to give eventually because you know, some of the sessions this year, not so much the research ones but the symposiums, they were closed doors an hour before the sessions had started. So I think we need to go back and look at these conferences and what's being accepted and all these factors are going to impact the ultimate publication rate of what's being presented at the conferences. Can I take a different tact? Because I think one of the wonderful things about presenting, whether it's a poster presentation or a platform, is the opportunity to find out that other people care about your work. I agree that the meeting's getting more crowded, but maybe we can do a two-tiered system where to be selected to do a platform presentation, it has to be high quality and there are certain criteria, but accept everybody who wants to submit a poster and open the poster sessions up for a much longer period of time and have many more posters. And so it is consumer beware. There's no question about that. But it also provides that stimulus that some of our future authors need in order to get excited about what they're doing so they're then interested in going on and publishing. So, Stuart, I'm taking a totally different perspective to what you suggest. I I don't disagree with that in a sense that if there is some sort of standard and we can say, okay, these studies reach this certain standard and then they're presented as platforms. And, you know, even if we had, like they do at other conferences where they have plenary platforms, where if you get a plenary oral presentation, then you're recognized as submitting something of high impact. Do you have a view for CSM? Yes, I think that it's a balancing act that's not that easy. On the one hand, you would like to provide encouragement to people who are new to the research area. I think people who have been doing research for a long time have forgotten how difficult that process is and how complex it is. So on the one hand, you would like to provide a way so that people who've done some work at least have the satisfaction of being able to present their work, share their ideas, meet people. And maybe, you know, I always wonder for that work that never gets published, how many of those people went to the meeting and met somebody and lined up a postdoc position lined up a PhD position, lined up some kind of interaction with other researcher, and it launched their career for a paper that never got published, but at least it served the purpose of them being out there sharing their ideas. Same thing, researchers go by and they see a nice idea that would have never been published otherwise, and that prompted them to do work and to pursue this. Okay. But it's a balancing act, and I don't know what the answer is. Okay. 
another issue that interests me, because obviously I'm from overseas, is that walking around CSM, you see very few international presentations. And I think in the paper they said less than 1% of presentations at CSM are from international institutions. Is that the right mix, or do you want to change that at all? I can speak on that thing. I'm from overseas as well, so I'm from where you are, Chris. And I was surprised. And Well, I wasn't surprised in the sense that going to CSM, I knew that there's very little international involvement. And I know my colleagues in Australia really don't know what CSM is or aspire to come over. And that can be fine if you want CSM to be representative of the United States. But if you want CSM to be something bigger and more impactful in terms of an international stage, then it would be nice to try and get more international people to submit. But it wasn't a very surprising finding that really only seven out of the 820-odd abstracts came from an international institution. Yeah, you know, I've been to national meetings in a number of countries, and you're oftentimes the only non-national person there, except when you're an invited speaker that comes in to provide some presentation and so on. I think it's true of probably CSM as well. I kind of wonder a little bit in that regard if they're not doing that purposely in a way to avoid becoming in conflict with the World Congress of Physical Therapy that has an international meeting. And I don't know if that there's any truth to that or not, but I wonder if there is some conscious effort not to try to expand to an international meeting that could kind of undermine the effort of the official international meeting that takes place every four years. But otherwise, yes, I mean, it'd be fantastic to have more people. You know, Canada is fairly close to us here. Coming from Europe or Australia is a good distance, but Canada is fairly close. And I know we have some people from Canada every year, but there could definitely be more. Okay. Yes, so Chris, I think you've raised an interesting question. It's a really huge question that you've raised. I agree completely with what Gia said. It would be fantastic, but I think there are lots of questions to ask. You know, do we replace a national focus meeting with an international meeting, and then what are we competing with besides that? So it's a wonderful question that requires lots of thought. Okay. Well, up until now, we've considered some of the downsides. Maybe if we start with Stuart, what's the good news from the paper? Because there is good news. So there is good news, and that is that we are publishing a lot of work, and it's being published in good journals, and it's also being published in a broad spectrum of journals. And you know, one out of four abstract, that's not a bad benchmark to start at. That's where we were around 2000, 2004, which is the time of the abstract presentations. And you know, I think that if we repeat this, that you'll see this number go up in the next decade, two decades. Okay, and Beck, what do you see as the good news from this paper? Well, I think Stuart has said it. I think it's going to increase. For me, it's really positive. One in four out of all these different types of presentations, I think, is a good number. I'm sorry that we don't have historical data, but I would expect that we would also move forward. And I was also very pleased to see the quality of the journals in which the papers were being published. So I think that it was a very positive outcome for me. Okay. And Guy, what was your positive take on the paper? I agree. I think if we look at the publication rate, I think it's good. But the main thing is I also go back to the fact that it just saw how the number of presentations, the number of people there shows the involvement of the profession at large with research. And I think that's an involvement that we all want to see because we preach to clinicians to get involved with research and understanding research and more faculty members to be involved. So it just shows the great involvement with research at those meetings. And, you know, 
the quality of the work that is being done today compared to 10 years ago, the quality of what's being published and what is presented at meeting has gone through a tremendous improvement. So however we look at it, I think that we have a quickly evolving research community and better quality work all the time every year that I've been the editor. So I think it's all very positive in terms of the progress we're making. I think we've probably come to the end of the discussion. So each of you have one minute statement just to sum up where we've been and what you'd like to leave as pearls of wisdom. Do you want to start, Stuart, with your one minute sum up? I think for our paper, you've got to look at it for what it is. And the study gives a benchmark for publication rate of abstracts that are presented at conferences. We're doing a good job in terms of research. We're doing good research. We're doing different types of research. We're doing randomized controlled trials. And we're publishing a good portion of them. And really, I think that's more of a point than looking at just a single, you know, is this a good or bad result in this study? It's more, does it provide motivation for us to really move forward from here in terms of how we publish and how we approach publication in physical therapy? Okay, now for Beck. I thank Dr. Warden for publishing this paper in the journal. I think it really has raised lots of interesting questions and thoughts about where we are as a profession in terms of our scholarship, and I look forward to seeing changes in the future. So I agree with you that it's an excellent benchmark. So right now we have information that at least tells us what happens with the orthopedic abstract. I think that's a really good beginning, and it will be nice to see how it changes in the future. I really expect it to continue to improve. So I thank you for doing the work. And finally, Gay? Yes, I think that we need to be a little bit careful. There's probably a lot of things we don't know about some of the background, why papers don't get published, number of papers not accepted for CSM. I think it's easy to make cause and effect relationship with all of those data, but I think we need to be a little bit careful not to make direct cause and effect when we actually don't know the reason why those discrepancy in publications really exist. I've gone to CSM for 15 years or so in a row now, and when I go to the meeting and I see all those new young investigators that are well-trained, that are doing really exciting work, I think we have to be very positive about the research progression that we've made. And, you know, 12 or so years ago, the first time I was on an NIH study section to review grant submission to NIH, there may have been three physical therapists out of 30 around the table. Last time I did it two or three years ago, half the people around the table were now physical therapists being involved at this highest level of funding. So I'm very positive as far as the future. So how would I conclude? Well, I think we should congratulate our colleagues who share their work with us at CSM. The message is that presentation at CSM is an important part of the research process, but it's obviously not the completion of the research project. We also need researchers to submit their work for publication in peer-reviewed journals like PTJ and also JOSPT. And importantly, after that, we need educators to incorporate the research into the curriculum and for clinicians to wisely use that research to inform their practice. We didn't touch on those last two issues, but they're just as critical for our profession. I'd like to thank our speakers for sharing their wisdom with us today. Thank you very much. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.